Let's do I'll, this before I'm being this. complimentary. Oh, who are you complimenting? Me? Myself. Oh, great. Just another day. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Hi, welcome to Outrageous, a podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friends, Trisha in LA. Hello. And Jason in DC. Hey there. Hi, everybody. Good. Spoiler alert, I'm actually not in New York. I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina, taking care of some business down here. I went through an airport today for the first time in a while. How was that? Um, well, how's the plane? I'm actually more interested in the plane. Like that airport doesn't seem. Well, I want to say this. Flashback to a couple years ago when the president was like, "LaGuardia Airport is like a third world country." It is not. But listen, it's not great. (laughs) (laughs) We all knew it's not great. They spent six hundred bazillion dollars, and I'll tell you, it looks like something from like a sci-fi set. It's really pretty now. And it's even prettier because there was no one there. And where were all the people? On the plane with me. Elbow (laughs) to elbow. I don't know if you've seen the news. They're like, oh, we're taking precautions. It's only one person per row. Yeah. American Airlines is like, nah, that's fine. Cram them in. Uh, (laughs) I bet you they're operating like the subway where they've just kind of like decreased their numbers. And so therefore they end up with a crowd. (laughs) When I... Got onto the plane because I, I only arrive in time just to sit down right seconds before they close the doors when I show up because I do not wait in line. So I get on the plane. The plane's full of people. And I was like, this has got to be a joke. Like, what am I going to do? If I didn't have COVID before, I most certainly have it now. Well, certainly. thank American Airlines. But I'm really happy that the U.S. is finally coming into the future with other countries. So LaGuardia <laughs> looks like um, a futuristic uh, It <laughs> looks really cool. It looks really cool. I went into the bathroom. There was like a lingering smell of lemon. Wow. <laughs> Things were yeah, very clean. I, I didn't immediately recoil from putting my bag down on the floor. You know, it was so nice in there. There might have been a, a, like a light motif of music playing. It was, <laughs> it was probably like one of the first two or three dozen people to use that bathroom. It's uh, it was it was nice. So fly through LaGuardia, check it out. But uh, but also also don't, don't get, get on, on the planes. plane. Don't Just get go on to the planes. airport, have a good time, visit the Yo, bathroom, and then go home. Last thing on this. So the people behind me were pissed. Person A was like, "Damn, look at all these people." Person B was like, mm, "And they don't bring you anything to drink. No little thing of water. No wine. Nothing." Person A, nothing. Person B nothing like and that went back and forth for like another three volleys and they were getting increasingly more upset that they'd be getting more liquids on this 90 minute flight and i was <laughs> and i was like do you want to trust anything that's happening on a flight with liquids i, I mean do you want me. anyone leaning over you to give you something i don't need to see anyone doing anything what about the two of you what are, what are you up to my lovely fiance has left our three-month-old puppy under my chair, so get ready to be disrupted. That's what I have to say. Uh, you know what? I swear to God, I thought you were going to say my fiance left our three-month-old baby, and I was like, "You son of a bitch! You like to keep secrets, Jason." And I was, 
was like, what? He's the Janet Jackson of the crew. You really are. You like to keep secrets. <laughs> what are you talking about? I don't keep any secrets. <laughs> I did too. I didn't think there was going to be a baby intro. Did you see like, my face? <laughs> I was like three month old baby. What? How did that happen? I'm going to make a confession. Here we go. I went and had a socially distanced brunch. Oh, good. That's great. I Bitch, know. I was on a plane, so you yeah. should have led first if that was your confession. I know. I felt okay, so I did two oddly weird things this last week. So they opened up the TJ Maxx and the Rosses and everything. So I went to the TJ Maxx with my mask on and with every single thing that I could carry in my bag that will allow me to feel like I'm gonna be safe. I go in, they're having a massive sale. I look around and I was like, you know what? They were they they had actually reduced the number of people that they were allowing. But I looked around. And I was like, you know, I just don't want to be confined inside. So I went up to my sister and I was like, I'm just gonna go outside. She's like, you sure? I was like, take as long as you want. Two hours later, by the way, I come back. Wow. <laughs> and she's still in, in she, she took you up on that. She took yeah. up on that offer. And I was like, she did want. ask you if you were sure. So. <laughs> Can't say in, in that case, I, I will be like, spending the day in this DJ. I know. I was like, I can't be confined like this. And so I was like, I don't think I can do that. And then I was like, oh, I really want to get together with one of my friends I haven't seen in forever. So I looked up and I was like, is our restaurant open? It is open and you can sit on the patio. So we did that. We went, we sat with a mask and spoke for a bit. But then when we needed to eat, we took the mask off. And then I looked to the right of me and someone's coughing. And I was like, how dare he cough? (laughs) But then, okay, now this is going to be so sad. But so, of course, you know, I'm so... I'm so in the house all the time. I don't do anything. But then why is it that I'm here at this brunch and I look across the street and there's like a protest starting and I'm like, please don't let me be that person in the picture. having Yes. (laughs) Jason, have you seen that picture online? No. There's a picture of like all like these people like having brunch and like right on the street are people actually protesting. So it's like these people care about brunch. These people care about black lives. So Trisha was very... All it took was one photograph. Be like, isn't that, isn't that the host of Outrageous having brunch while people are protesting? Exactly. They have no idea if I might have protested the morning of or nothing. (laughs) I could have just been taking a break and having a meal. God. And I was like, like, it's like Seinfeld making out during Schindler's List. Not a good look. Not a good look. It really was. But I have to say, I came in and I put it in my calendar and I'm going to be counting 14 days. <laughs> oh, my God. You just went to a brunch. I literally hung out with hundreds of people in a tube. Do you know You'll what they did? Though? It was all the, the waiter had masks, had face shields and a mask on gloves. And they only used um, disposable goods like the knives and forks were disposable. The only thing was the plates. They were washing was this, the plates. This was yes. outdoors, right? It was outdoors. Okay. So they gave me like a plastic cup. I was like, okay. <laughs> I mean, now, well, here in Maryland, it, they just started allowing outdoor dining in, in, where in the county I live. You can't eat indoors. And the restaurant down the street 
we just drove by, they have put a tent up that takes up like the whole parking lot. They were like, all right, if we can only serve outside, we are doing it right. That's but the, smart, but the tent is then inside. inside <laughs> I know. Well, it's just a roof, though. It is just it's yeah. like a canopy. Oh, OK. Yeah. Like a canopy. Well, in, in my neighborhood in Queens, every bar and restaurant was like, OK, Cuomo, we can only work outside. Fine. People without like curbside dining licenses have put like chairs and tables out in front of the bar. It's a total <laughs> European experience. So when you're walking down the street, there's people on your left and your right, just all laughing, expectorating, having a great time. <laughs> just you, you have to walk in the middle of the street now if you want to avoid people. It is it is interesting how the pandemic has become a political football between Mayor de Blasio and Governor Cuomo. It's like, oh, wait, there are people there, you know, violating like, oh, de Blasio, I'm going to shut your city down. Like. <laughs> <laughs> I like become that. That. He doesn't Cuomo. Even need to talk. He just gave the United States Tennis Association permission to hold nice. the U.S. Open. Nice I was that. like, you know oh, what? De Blasio did? No, it, it had to come from the state. It said Cuomo oh, did That's and interesting. I was like, Cuomo's the daddy. I like one last month, de Blasio was like, we're going to be opening schools in the fall. And Cuomo later that day was like, yeah, we're not sure about that. So. I don't know. Well, I know. That's why I think <laughs> de Blasio was like, oh, uh, sorry, daddy. <laughs> so that's embarrassing. Suspect that he decided to let the U.S. Open go. But I guess the revenue that's generated and the, the TV rights and all of that was too much for him. Are you going to go? Oh, no, it's not. It, it's not supposed to be in front of a crowd. Oh, see, that's why, though. I mean, that seems like a responsible. Yeah, that's fair. So, it's because tennis isn't football. You could really take the precautions. Can I tell you, though, I don't know if you saw this, but I, oh, what is his name? One uh, one of the basketball players made a really good point, And now I want no sports to come back. He said, we're really unpacking a lot of really important things right now. Yes. And sports is too distracting. And it's going to take away attention from us really getting to the meat of certain issues. And I have to say that if all the athletes got together and really dug deep on that, I think we could get a lot of things accomplished for people. If you refuse to entertain folks and make them money for the next several months and say, listen, we want these, these are our demands, I think you could make a really substantial shift. You know, Trisha, I was just thinking about this today because I was hearing a news story about, you know, the conflict between the uh, Major League Baseball Players Association and uh, and the league. And, you know, it occurred to me because, you know, people were making the argument they got to get together. They got to figure this out because people are stressed out and they need they need a distraction. It's like, actually, we're in a moment that I've always dreamed of, which is like, yep. what would people do with their time? if they weren't distracted by professional sports and other things, like they're actually, we're trying to make our society a more just place. It's like what I've always fantasized about. It really is. This is your dream come and true. I want them to is. keep doing it. I really do. I think, I think that's why you have more people out on the streets protesting. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of those things are, you're going to be able to move people forward by really making a stark case for how poorly we are supporting the most vulnerable amongst us. So I actually don't want sports to come back. I'm not one of those people. And I like tennis. But I'm like, you know what? Stay gone for a while. Use that moment to change society for the better. Why not? I don't I, know. I'm with I, you. I 100% mm -mm. agree that we should not bring sports back. Cancel sportsing. <laughs> Cancel sportsing. <laughs> I mean, that should be your motto, Chris. Listen. You could run on that uh, slogan. Listen. I've finally achieved my goals. 
No sportsing. <laughs> no sportsing. It's just so dumb. But no, it's uh, not even. No, that. it's not dumb. <laughs> can I, wait, can I ask you something? Well, Trisha, you're a sportsing person. Yep. <laughs> I was talking to a sportsing person, a sportsing fan, the other day. Last thing, then we get to topics. Just that I, I have so much to talk to you guys about. But last thing, so uh, I was talking to a sportsing fan. I think she likes baseball, and she was saying how they were talking about maybe doing like an abbreviated season or something where they play a couple of games. And I was like, would that satisfy you as a sportsing fan, just like an abbreviated season? And and she was like, no, it will be fun. And I was, I was like, okay, the closest thing I have to being a sportsing fan is RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> <laughs> same thing. And, same thing. Baseball. And, yeah, pretty RuPaul's much. Drag race, and, and, a, and, a, and American Ninja Warrior. Those are the two. Those are the things where I know all the players. <laughs> I know stats. I know like who's good. Like I I know those two things in and out. And I'll tell you, like, if American Ninja Warrior, which did not air this summer, was like, oh, we'll just do like a one-off thing where we'll just like have all the favorites come up, I wouldn't give a shit. Like, I'm interested in the competition. So, Trisha, as a sportsing person, if the U.S. Open wasn't going on, but they had all, they trotted out the players to do like a charity event, would that scratch your sportsing itch or no? No. I mean, actually, it's so interesting that you asked that because they actually did do that. They brought a bunch of people together for a kind of tour of like um, Serbia and like Montenegro is supposed to be. And it's supposed to be kind of within that region. And I had zero interest in it. I really did. I mean, part of it is that my conception, like, I I don't even want to say that it's about the fact that I like competition because I've gone to um, Labor Cup, which is a kind of competition, but like exhibition style. Mm -hmm. And I found that very pleasurable. But part of it is my head is not in sports. I think there's just, just, you are distracted. I'm, I am not only am I distracted, but I'm also really, really excited by the engagement of people Mm -hmm. on really important things. And I don't see the value of sports coming in and taking that audience's gaze and offering a solution to marketers and to companies who need to make some more money. Like I'm like, no, Let's take this moment. So for me, I've actually found it really to be very distracting and I'm annoyed. And I actually think everyone who's doing it is selfish as hell. <laughs> That's how badly well, I feel about whoa. it. Like, I, really, I have really strong feelings about it. I said, listen, if we can take this moment and transform people's lives for the better, use it. I'm not distracted by it. I don't want it. La- <laughs> All right. Last question. Th- this is a very long lead in listeners. I apologize, but I love these two and I haven't talked to them in a while. So. Do you feel the same way about television shows that should be filming now? Well, not. So it's going to be a very bare fall. Like, do you feel the same way about TV? Like, should there be an effort to get TV and movie production back on track? Or is this just, you're just limited to sports for both this question for both of you. So I will say two things that I admit are maybe a little contradictory. On the one hand, I don't see any reason why there's, there should be any rush to get back to filming but admittedly, when I say that, it's not only because of this, what, what Trisha is saying, which I agree with, which is like, let's stay focused on social change. It's also, frankly, because there's so much friggin' content. I could think of, you know, hundreds of movies and TV shows I haven't watched that I want to watch. And they're there. And I don't need new stuff to entertain me. I mean, I think, obviously, you know, listen, we're thinking about these things. And this is probably going to trend really nicely into the next topic. These ideas are way too complicated for me probably to unpack. But I understand that people have this assumption that 
businesses are going to go under, folks are going to be struggling. All of those things are very much true in my mind, I guess. But I feel like the ends justifies the means. I feel like the gains that we can have in this moment more than make up for the potential shortfall for a studio or a TV station or any of those folks who can't make it normally would be during this period. Am I like a bad capitalist? Because I... I, I... (laughs) Speaking of capitalism, let's slide into the topic. Jason? Yes. So, dear listeners, um, I would like to challenge Chris on something. Chris, I'd like to challenge you on something. Here we go. You know, two weeks ago, we were talking about the protests. We were talking about some of the businesses that have been, in some cases, kind of targeted during the protests, but, but more importantly, the protests in general. And Chris, you made a couple comments about, well, you know, ultimately, this is about capitalism and and you were pointing out that some of the businesses that are targeted are ones that have been exploitative. What I heard from you is you seem to be suggesting that really at the root of these issues of inequality and brutality against black people, that capitalism is really at the root. I listened and I kind of struggled with it. And, you know, look, years ago I identified as a socialist and I still do not claim to be a super pro-capitalism person. But I, I wrestle with it because... I'm not sure, and this is a question I want to put to you two, that capitalism is the root of the problem, that race equity is antithetical to capitalism any more than another economic system like socialism could be challenging for to have race equity, at least if we look at kind of the historical record. Um, so I guess I want to challenge you, Chris, and obviously I'm interested in Trisha's point of view too, which is... Is capitalism really the root of the problem or is, you know, white supremacy and and inequality, is that a separate thing that just interacts with capitalism, but actually the two could, we could coexist with uh, with both capitalism and inequality? Well, Jason. (laughs) Fight it out. Take that, Chris. What what do you got to say? And what? Well... Let's strip this down. Let's let's break it down, right? Capitalism, like the system of capitalism as we practice it. Like I had said on that podcast, there is one winner for a couple of thousand losers. That's the way it works. That's the way I learned about capitalism, that there's a pyramid. And the people at the top exist because there's a wide base of people at the bottom who are exploited. And they're exploited necessarily so the people at the top of the pyramid can make as much money as they can make and give hope to people along the pyramid that they can one day join them. From my understanding is that not everyone will be successful in a capitalist society. It's not possible. You definitely need the people at the bottom to, you know, to borrow from H.G. Wells. You, know, you can't have the Eloy without the Morlocks working in anonymity to support those few. So I think there is a, di- a direct line to draw to things like white supremacy and discrimination and exclusion and the absence of equity. Capitalism to me is the very absence of equity by definition and necessity. Can capitalism exist in some other way that increases equity? Perhaps I am not the scholar who can tell you about that. If you don't want someone who doesn't have access to healthcare 
who can make a living wage. Like if you don't want people to exist in that strata, then we can't have Oprah Winfrey's and Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos's. Because to have someone like an Oprah Winfrey or Jeff Bezos, like those people sat in a room and said, okay, well, I'd like to be a billionaire, please. And they were surrounded by people who said, well, this is the way that we can do it. We won't offer the, the workers healthcare. And we know they said yes to one of those terms because they are billionaires. There's no other way to make that much money unless you are exploiting people. I think our society is definitely geared towards creating actively, not passively, actively creating haves and have-nots. I think what you're suggesting is that capitalism requires stratification. Yes. And the means for stratification, Jason's suggesting, needn't be racial. But I think that the, the unique thing with the United States is that Black people were capital. We were the means by which you, which you acquired wealth because we were considered property. And that is embedded in the construction of all of our institutions. If you were going to envision a world in which it's not racialized and gendered, we would have to see a different kind of um, capitalism take root, right? And so sometimes we talk about how other societies have a mix. Like there's a business model there, but it's not purely capitalism, right? It's like it's a combination. But I think the one that we have in the United States is uniquely pernicious, and I can't quite see myself outside of it. So even in spaces where it's not a traditional capitalist society, it was built off of some notion of capital that was racialized very, very far in the past, right? So like the Dutch, how did they acquire their wealth? Right? <laughs> like Historical societies acquired their wealth through the slave trade, the spice trade. I don't understand how we can even unpack the root of this thing to talk about better, a better version of capitalism, which I mean, I'm sorry, that's one of the things that I thought was really sweet about Elizabeth, where she's like, we can have good capitalism. I don't know if that's possible. What does good capitalism look like? Well, I was just going to ask mean that. that you're, well, I mean, I think in her assumption, it was like there were much more like um, the levers of society were working better in her mind. Like you weren't allowed to um, monopolize one particular industry. You weren't allowed to exploit labor. But then the question becomes, how do you then generate profit? And how, who are you beholden to? And are you able to hold that line for like the the um, the head of a company, are you not answering only to your shareholders now? You're answering to some other call, and you can be held accountable. Like I think that seems to be the way that people have defined kind of rampant capitalism, right? Is that you are not accountable to anyone else but your shareholders. Has there been a time in the past when we were accountable in some other way? Is it accountability? There's something about rampant capitalism because you look at how much money, say, CEOs made versus line workers 60 years ago, yeah. and that number has increased manifold. Yep. And I have been wrestling with the idea, okay, well, what if I wanted to you know, be King Widget? I wanted to sell as many widgets as possible, right? And widgets cost me 90 cents to make, but I've been marketing for $9. What if I marketed them for $4.50? took less profits, like, and took less money for me and the people at the top. Like, is that still a good model of capitalism? Is the problem that we have become so greedy? Is the problem that 
we have a myth of billion and trillionaires and that that's what we are aiming for and we've we've moved laws in that direction i don't know so when i think about good capitalism if there is such a thing i don't see i don't know how that works though because if you lifted people out of poverty if you made people less desperate um, and you had a good enough working wage that would necessarily affect profitability and so that's interesting i'm in a cul-de-sac Jason, was any of that elucidating for you? It, no, it was helpful to hear you both wrestle with it. And that's interesting. I mean, I my knee-jerk reaction to the last thing you said, Chris, is that, you know, there's the oft-quoted Henry Ford, obviously very problematic figure, but, you know, he was the one who said, I got to pay my my workers a certain wage, and if I pay them enough to buy my cars, that increases profits. So there is a way in which you can have better wages and still increase profitability. The reason why I find this question interesting is because where we fall on a question like this, to me, impacts what are the policy solutions we should be pursuing right now. Now, right now, there's a big call for defunding the police. I happen to agree with it. It makes sense to me. One thing I'm struggling with in this moment is is figuring out, like, any issue you say, well, let's do this to reform things or improve things it calls into question a bunch of other things, right? So the immediate example of this, which relates to the conversation we had last week, was, okay, do you reform the police or do you defund? And, you know, people are saying, and I happen to agree, trying to reform the police doesn't work. There's something fundamentally problematic with the history and and how it's situated, policing, and so we got to go a step further and defund, and that that may be right. But but if we also say that capitalism is actually the problem— then you kind of land in a different place. And it's like, well, do we want to put all of our energy into defunding the police or should we be looking at something more fundamental? Something I'm struggling with, not to take us off topic, I still go back to under the current constitution, can we really have an equitable society or should we be talking about reframing the constitution in the, in the way that South Africa did coming out of apartheid? South Africa has its own challenges. I'm not holding it up as as an ideal, but I don't know. So that I, I'd love to hear if you have any responses to that. Where, if we think you, you that the answer to this question is no, you can't really have the kind of equality we want, the kind of society we want under capitalism, then like, where does that take you in terms of what you're working for? Is defund the police even worthwhile or should we have our attention on something very different? You know, one of the things I think that's interesting about the model that we have now, which I guess some people call it what extractive capitalism, which is that you're constantly taking natural resources and you're not replenishing it. And so eventually the very thing that you are extracting and using to create capital will be depleted. It strikes me that the system that we've created is death-inducing, ultimately. That's the issue around the cops, right? Or even this notion of the cops or defunding the police is that you are creating a system by which you are just creating barriers for people. You're not creating a space where people are going to have enhanced health. You are simply downgrading the natural order of life to the point where there is no reason why this should exist. So if you continue to deplete your um, health allowances, education allowances, what can you possibly have but just a very, very small group of people who have captured all of the resources and then essentially a police that's guarding that very small group and everyone left out? Like that model is like, it's essentially, um, it's death. 
like that's what I think is strange about this. It's like you are introducing death as a way of life. For some. For not just for some, but for a large group. Now I'm really thinking about this. I'm like dizzy with the implications. <laughs> Sorry. To focus on something you said, though, Jason, should we be focused on defunding the police? Should we be focused on dismantling capitalism? You know, I don't know why it's either or. I think they might be uh, path, uh, stops on the paths to each other. I don't know. But I, I think that defunding the police, abolishing police is a good start. And I think once we start going down that road, other questions about the way that we live our lives will become widely discussed. And I think capitalism, one of those things where it's like, listen, capitalism is a machine. In order for it to work, we have to load human lives into it. We have to throw people away. How many people are we willing to sacrifice so that we can live like this? That's the fundamental question. What I'm learning right now from this moment is that people are waking up to versions of that question and they're not comfortable with the terms. This conversation we're having about police brutality and Black Lives Matter, I think it might lead us to a larger conversation about like, no, wait a minute. How, how does this work? Like, yeah, Black Lives Matter, but also, you know, it's, we're long overdue for an awakening about class warfare here. I mean, Occupy Wall Street started it and then sort of like fell off, but we're long overdue at looking at history that way as a struggle of underclasses versus the overclass. Because I saw someone say it this week and was getting all kinds of props. Like, you know, really what's really going on here is that this is about class. It's not about race. And well, maybe- in I, some by the, For the record, I did not say that. No, but I okay. hate it. I okay. absolutely hate it. But only if one considers the idea that we are sort of unified as an underclass to which Black people are disproportionately highly represented. But when people came to me and was starting to sort of talk about, you know, oh, poor you, Black Lives Matter, what I, my rebuttal was, they start with me. But this whole, this whole operation necessarily leads to your humanity being sacrificed as well. Oh, that's a good point. And I mean, I'm, you know, as we're talking, like I am thinking about, well, what are capitalist societies that don't have the racial diversity and inequality that we have? And we spent a lot of time talking about the movie Parasite, right? South Korea is, mm -hmm. is known as a very homogeneous country. And clearly people get thrown away there, um, maybe not based on race, but, but yeah, and I, I just, I'll just second what, or third, what you two alluded to, which is class is a real issue and it, it is an issue in any capitalist society, but race, op and they intersect race and class, but in our country, again, I don't have to tell you two, but like race brings vulnerability and danger in a way that far um, uh, transcends class. Well, particularly because people who are particularly vulnerable based on their class find comfort in racial superiority. And so it really prevents us from unifying and seeing that our fates are intertwined, right? I mean, I, I dare say on some level, the Black Lives Matter protests is a, a, is a massive cultural touch point, but I also think it is also representative of representative of people recognizing again because everything is gone and there are no distractions how much their society and their government has failed them during a pandemic 
Mm-hmm. I don't know if people have made that full connection yet. Some don't see, I see that connection, but I don't know if people understand that that's why there is a kind of urgency about leaving their house and proclaiming that Black Lives Matter. I don't know if they see that intersection yet. The other thing that I am thinking about is what I mentioned earlier is that CEOs, people at the top are making so much more money and the uh, Republicans have slashed taxes for the rich people and regular people, their taxes either go up or stay the same. And I think we're approaching a moment, there's a consciousness raising that's happening right now. There's a real awareness of like having and having not. There's definitely a racial caste system in America. Uh, and there's always been a class caste system as well. And those two things do intersect, but they're not all, they don't operate exactly the same way. Right. I wonder if like all this attention, the first, first of all, the fact that 44 million people are unemployed as of last week, I think the fact that um, it's so well publicized how with all the grants and stimulus, like corporations ran off with millions, hundreds of millions of dollars of it. I wonder if we're approaching the, the awareness point now, sort of flickered into existence with Occupy Wall Street. It's like, hey, we're all the underclass. Do you understand? Like, do you understand that capitalism is crushing all of us? There's a racial caste system that operates within those confines. We're not going to get race equity. We're not going to throw out the racial caste system until we address the class caste system. Our barometers are off. How do you have a stock market that seems celebratory of a moment where people are starving, their bread lines, they're like, you know what I mean? Like, I wanted to ask that every day, the stock market's going up. (laughs) What the fuck am I missing? What? First of all, I'm going to be real honest. In eighth grade, I was out for like three days straight. We talked about the stock market. I never caught up. I I don't know how it works. I don't understand it. So do you know what? Let that be a lesson. Kids who are listening, you miss three days of school. It could affect the rest of your life. I I just don't know how that works. So hey, every, I was I was in school for those lessons and I still don't know shit. So every day they're like stock market goes up, stock market goes up. I'm like, stores are closed, people are in the streets. I don't understand how that part of the money works. Tells, it tells me that something's off. You know how like in the where is it, Bhutan, they have like an happiness happiness index. Yeah. Our indi- our indices are wrong. They're off. They're not count. They're not calculating the things that you want them to calculate. Maybe they're maybe they're calculating like investor confidence, and maybe the investors are pretty confident because they know they've got like pocket of cash that Trump has passed on to them. So whatever you're count, I mean, like I don't know. Are you counting people in breadlines? Like how do you count for that? Like, like what's the measure that you use to well, look at that? I think what you're touch- touching on, Tricia, which is something I find interesting, and and I don't mean to be an apologist for capitalism, but but just in this moment, something I think about is, you know, there there were people with real socialist leanings that early in the 20th century thought that like the corporate model was a really positive one because theoretically you could have a corporation that has a broad base of shareholders. You could have a corporation whose shareholders are from different classes or from different races. And in that case, and this gets to the accountability you were talking about earlier, you would have corporations accountable to delivering profits to a diverse group of people. I think the reality is, and this is where I'm going to sound like Elizabeth Warren, like we've allowed 
the the kind of rules that undergird our economic system to be manipulated so that the the group of people who are benefiting from the stock stock market and who have money in the stock market and who are the shareholders is a smaller and smaller group of people and I dare say, you know, a pretty racially homogeneous group of people. I don't know whether like capitalism per se is like the problem. I think certainly capitalism as it exists in the ways that you two have touched upon a lot in this conversation is a huge part of the problem. But you see, that's kind of like when I was in class and I read about all the different like um, economic systems and I got excited by them. What's written on a page and how it plays out in real life? Are, and people are always saying, oh, this isn't really capitalism. I'm like, guess what? It still plays out in this way, though. So let's deal with the reality of how capital plays out. Like, And so the question is, maybe back in the day when you had like um, corporate towns, right, where maybe a town, like you had one company in a town and it yeah. was employing everyone. And therefore, it, you know, if you if the company was successful, you were successful. But after we sort of moved away from that model where you're just like chopping up companies and it becomes something else, maybe that's part of the maybe that's part of what's happened. But I think the illusion of like the capitalism that you read about and the ultimate fairness of it, that oftentimes when I hear people defend capitalism, I'm like, but you're not talking about how it plays out. You're talking mm-hmm. about a, um, a version that is like a textbook capitalism. And we haven't had that for a very long time, if ever, I don't even know. What you just said, unfortunately, we could say about just about any system, right? Socialism (laughs) looks great. You read the (laughs) Communist Manifesto, it sounds great. And then in practice, and and this is where, again, it's like a chicken and egg thing, I don't have the answer, but you know, again, you have socialist countries that end up becoming brutal and oppressive and racist and- Because they're caste. The caste system cannot be beat. That's it's multiple it things. You've got to attack it from different areas. I'm not saying that if you dug up and unearthed the root of capitalism, that everyone would be like, quickly, rainbows, you know, <laughs> fountains, let's all dance around the maypole. Like, it's not that simple because human <laughs> beings are still human beings. Yeah. But I, capitalism isn't helping. <laughs> I think our conception of uh, our conception of capital and property and uh, yeah. work and what people deserve and what All you earn. I don't, I think that can be shooken up a little bit and we can, things would shake out to maybe be a little bit more equitable. Uh, I don't know if socialism is the answer. I don't have any experience with it. And I only know about textbook socialism. <laughs> uh, so I, I don't know if that would, if that could apply. I think like like most socialist and communist experiments, if it was on a very small scale, like if one state like Rhode Island was like, fuck you, I'm we're breaking off and they wanted to become socialist, they could probably do it. I don't know how to do it in a nation this many. To come back around to your point, Chris, about, and Jason, I guess the larger question about like how this would play out in terms of defunding institutions that are overly funded now. I think what we, we've just never really allowed that to play out. We've never really seen what it would be like if the education system was overly funded. Like, like what would it look like if the education system was that overly represented um, 90, 900% on the, um, the budget? Like, what, what does it look like if students have everything that they need in a classroom? And what would, I mean, what, is the, what does that look like if everyone had the services that they need? I, I'm less concerned about what it's called and I'm much more interested in the distribution of resources. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in the thought experiment that you provide because you know what? People listening to this right now, 
when you said that, they immediately thought, well, that's not possible. How do we make sure that every classroom is fully funded? Like it feels like a fiction. It feels like it can't happen because we know that in order for some schools to look like, you know, Dalton or Horace Mann, you have to have crumbling, decaying schools somewhere. Like that's just that's our just conception weird... of how that works. Yeah. So we have to give that up. And we I have and, to give up that weird equation. And to give that up, that's to give that up. Then we have to really get to the core of the class caste system and the race caste system because that's where that's fueling those ideas. About or what supporting them. Thing, yes, right? supporting them. Like, well, if some people have, other people have not. And then it gets into why do these people deserve to have more or less? And that's where class and race comes into it. And then, so it's, it's, a and massive... then it's tied to religion. Yeah. Because then oh, you wrap up religion in there that tells you that the poor will always be with us. Yeah. <laughs> Blessed are the poor because they work hard for nothing and die. And then we live in relative comfort. Ooh, you two so, are know. you two are touching some nerves now. Please. Amen. Please. The show's the show's called outrageous. <laughs> <laughs> and we find our ways back to blasphemy on outrageous. Always. <laughs> Let's move on. Oh, actually a pretty good segue. So last week the Supreme Court announced that uh, LGBT discrimination flies in the face of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. You cannot be fired for being gay or trans countrywide, nationwide. Conservatives saw this as a terrible blow to their religious freedom because I'm going to try and be as objective about this as possible. These monsters think that it's important <laughs> that they be able to discriminate against people and if they cannot discriminate, it infringes upon their religious freedom. So I guess the question I wanted to ask the table was where, how do we put these things on the balance beam? What does it mean for us if having some people having full rights in the society infringes upon other people's religious freedom? Or is that false? Is that a false comparison? Is that a false association? What do you think? I'm really pleased with the decision. I think it'll make our society a better place. Religion is tough because people, you know, our country, you know, we do have in the Bill of Rights that, you know, people have to be able to exercise their religion. And we have people who have strong religious convictions that really make it difficult for us to have a society where people, everyone to, to the way you framed it, Chris, which I thought was great, has like full rights. So again, I completely agree with the decision, but I do think, you know, people who believe that, you know, that homosexuality is a sin or is in conflict with what their God and their Bible requires, and then want to be able to hire people, you know, even in secular positions for their institutions, for their religious institutions that are in full alignment with their religion, this then puts them in a position where they feel like they're you know, being forced to to uh, compromise on that and to hire people that are not in alignment with with their religious beliefs. Again, I agree with the decision, but I I do think it's a real struggle for people who have those particular religious beliefs. I mean, I think the thing that's interesting is that this is really essentially a ruling about the workplace. The assumption yes. is that it will eventually succeed in being applied to other spaces, right? But this is just about you not being able to discriminate again against a gay person or a trans person or an LGBTQI person at work. 
I think my question about this in terms of a religious space, what does work have to do with your religion? Like if the person has the capacity to do the job, which is unless your belief system is a criteria for the job, I don't really understand what place religion plays in this. But the belief system or or at least behaviors in line with the belief system, they are a part of job requirements in some cases. I mean, I think the, the quick answer to your question, Tricia, in terms of what, what does religion have to do with work, is that we have religious institutions that employ lots of people. And they employ people to do a lot of different things. So, for instance, if you are a religious institution and you employ social workers to work with people and you feel like that social work needs to be in line with your religious doctrines, but you're hiring a social worker who identifies a certain way and behaves a certain way that you find to be in conflict with your religion and potentially delivers social work services that in, include an acceptance of those behaviors, um, even among the people they work with, like that the reality is religious institutions are institutions that involve a lot of labor um, and, and employment practices. But it's confusing because even even your example makes makes no sense to me, because how is a religious person interpreting the work of a social worker? It's in many ways, the work of a social worker is actually in contradiction to many religious precepts. Okay, but I think this is the thing. And before we get too far down this road, where we're talking about behavior codes at work. So I was a social worker working at a religious institution. If you remember, Tricia, on 9-11, right? When yep. I was working on the east side over there. It was a religious institution and I was working with young people. And I was told point blank when working with the teenagers that I was not to discuss contraception with them. We didn't hand out condoms. We were not to talk about contraception. We're not talk about abortion. That's really, really different as a fun. That's a function of my job. And yep, if I yeah. don't want to do that, I can leave. That's really different than you have to be straight, which has nothing to do with yeah. what's going on here, yeah. right? You, you have to uh, have relationships with women, have sex with women, which is a really weird requirement for a job, but that <laughs> that's really, really different than dictating how I do my work. And I, that, I think that's the problem that I'm having here. It's one thing if you got a job and you were like, listen, this is a Catholic school and we teach it's one man, one woman. I understand that you're gay, but um, we're going to need to teach the kids this. And that's part of the work function. That's really different than, oh, you're gay. You're out of here, even though you're just working the phones in the office. That's really different, isn't it? That's a great point. It, and so I think where the pushback is really – is the teaching of what is approved in the sense of in the example that you've given it's like it's not so much about the content of your work it's that your very existence is a betrayal of their belief systems system and but and participating the gay people in, are part- here that's the thing. but i mean like- <laughs> and that's fine according to them you're here but you don't have to be there you don't have to be in their space. And so that's why I think this whole thing is such a strange thing because really what you're what you're forcing the what you're forcing on people is this notion that their very existence is a betrayal of your religion. So I, like that's the fundamental crux of the issue for me. Like so you can have some distinctions around behavior codes that you've just made Chris. But I think where people are really pushing at least at least I, the way I've been reading things from fairly religious groups is that they're really pushing on the very fact that your existence is in contradiction 
to their religious belief system. So it doesn't matter if you are simply going to be teaching math. The fact that you acknowledge out loud that you have a husband, even if you don't talk about your husband, but you are teaching math, that in some sense is a schism. That doesn't check for me because I just think about it as like, unless you are living in isolation with your religion, you have to accommodate the existence of people who, has a, who have a right to be there. So unless you are going to be in a, a sort of a cult of some sort, or you're going to isolate and you can control everyone that you come in access to, and that becomes your sort of religious space, it doesn't make sense to me. You live in, a, you live in the world. You live in a world with secular people. You're talking are about you like saying, a commune or a kibbutz yeah, or something. Yeah, a commune or something like that. That makes sense in my mind, in which case you can control all the parameters but how can you control the parameters in a space where people have to have the right to move freely? I'm, I hear what you're saying, Tricia, but I think what you're describing to some extent is what lots of religions do. A lot of religions, not all, but a lot do carve out separate spaces for certain people. I mean, I think you've both made really good points. And I think, Chris, your distinction between behavior on the job versus behavior outside the job is a, is a really good point. Um, or behavior on but the job. Not and behavior, I, yeah, behavior on the job, and like Trisha said, existence. And, and identity. Period. I, that's, that's what's at, at stake here. Yeah, because they don't want you to exist. Like, yeah. that's really ultimately the, the game. I mean, you can play funky language all you want, but the very existence of gay people, I mean, the funny thing is, maybe back in the day, the existence of black people would also be some sort of contradiction uh, or something uh, for lots of religious traditions, maybe. I don't know. Religion religion seemed quite comfortable with the idea of three-fifths of a, of a person. So <laughs> I don't know how... I mean, Christianity was very <laughs> helpful in enslaving the Africans extremely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, purposefully. Done in the name. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it certainly had room for that. And so actually, I just, I think one of the things I... I guess what I'm trying, I guess what I'm worried, what I'm not worried about, but what I'm, I'm hearing them worry about is the idea that their religious tradition must accommodate the reality of people's existence, which by the way, that was a theological critique from um, black Christians is that Christianity were, was not really acknowledging the reality of black people's struggles in the world. Yeah. And if you were going to align with the lesser among us as Christ did, then you actually have to, you actually have to acknowledge that Christ is, is yoked to black people. That would be his crew. That would be his tribe, right, in some ways. And so if you take that natural, if you take the natural extension of that argument, who are the most vilified and endangered groups of people? Trans people. Black so trans I would women. Assume Trans, black trans women, but trans, you know, so then I would assume that that is who God with God or Jesus as interpreted in the text would be aligned with. But in some ways, this tradition is saying, no, your very existence well, puts I, my religiosity at risk. I don't well, really, I don't I wanna, think I want to circle back. Yep. I want to circle back to the original question then is what's the definition of religious freedom and religious liberties? And yep. does this Supreme Court ruling actually infringe upon people's rights as a religious person? I, I agree with the decision. I don't think I can answer that simply yes or no. I, I do, I do want to say, and it, it feels so strange because I'm going to quote someone 
a quote that I find heinous and a person I'm not a fan of. But I don't I think that a lot, maybe not all, but a lot of religious leaders don't see it the way you just described that they see it. And the example I'm going to give is when George when George H.W. Bush, you know, was asked about whether he was going to be helpful to people who were suffering from HIV and AIDS. And his response was something to the effect of people are behaving in ways that are they're getting the disease that way. And if there's a if the behavior is causing the problem, they should change the behavior. Now, it's an awful statement for so many reasons, but I don't think all religious leaders would would see it as I have a problem with anyone's existence. I think some of them would see it as our religion dictates behaving a certain way and people who are choosing to behave in the way that gay and trans people are behaving, those are people who are not behaving in line with our religious doctrine. But that's that's because George Bush was making a statement around sexual behavior or in his mind, sexual depravity. I mean, I don't even know if I want to go down there. I think what really people are offended by is the very existence of you. And it's not a behavior, it is your existence. Now the question, you're right. Maybe for them, they don't believe it's an existence. They don't believe that God made that person that way, that they're simply behaving out of step with God. And so what I was suggesting is this idea of kind of black liberation theology, which really struck at the idea that you have very, very, I mean, we come back around to stratification, right? Who are you aligning yourself with as a religious group? Are you aligning yourself with the people who are suffering? If you can rationalize and defend that stuff, that suffering, and therefore then use your religion as a weapon, I have to question that religiosity. I have to question the foundation of that religion. That's my personal take, but I don't. Ha- I'm not a strong religious person. But I, I, the question you raise, Chris, is it getting in the way of your religious freedom? It depends on how you're interpreting it. Does it stop you from holding your religious beliefs and practices? I don't think so. But if you believe that watching someone else live their life and live their truth, even though it contradicts yours, is a slap in the face of your religion, then yes. But it has nothing to do with your rights. That has to do with your opinions and the way that you'd like to live your life. Right. I want to underscore something that always gets brought up. Jason quoted his hero, George H.W. Bush. Oh, come on, come on. Don't do that. Unless the Christians want to just admit that they're running a sex cult and they're very concerned about where penises are going and how vaginas are receiving things, then they need to stop talking about the behavior of gay people. Okay? So it's not the fact that like Catholic – I mean if Catholics are really firing gay men because they're like, we know what you do with your penis – then like, are they asking the secretaries what they're doing with their parts? Like, where where is that in the interview? Because the to to underscore what Trisha's saying about it's not, it, it is about existence. Is that you know I would think of my I think of myself as a gay person not because what I do with my parts or what other people do with their parts in the vicinity of me, but it's my thoughts, it's my feelings, it's my entire being. It's just who I am. And that seems to be the problem because no one's doing anything. I mean, if you work at a school, if you work at fucking Hobby Lobby, if you work at Chick-fil-A, I'm going to hope that your genitals do not involve any part of the job. Do you know what I mean? I'm going to hope that you keep them far away from everything that needs to be kept far away (laughs) from. 
<laughs> and that's where the bullshit of religious freedom really comes into it because it's like, this isn't about my behavior, right? Because you haven't pulled everyone on their behavior. So if this is about sexual depravity is the way you think about it, have you pulled all the heterosexuals what they are into? You know, have you asked them all if, have you asked all the men if the seed, all their seed is being poured into a waiting and willing vagina? Like, cause if that's where you're going, then it's about my behavior. But if you're not doing that kind of questioning, then it's not about my behavior. It's just, you just don't want to be around gay people. Just like in the past, people just didn't want to be around black people or Koreans or Muslims or whatever. It's the same sort of thing. This is not a religious liberty issue. Sorry, it's a straight up boring discrimination issue. And people, conservatives are upset because the Supreme Court told them that they cannot discriminate any longer. So, I mean, the best case scenario for me is I think let's let the conservatives and these radical Christians move to the commune model. You know, whatever their Utah is, go find it and I was just gonna stay say, there. The Mormon stay model. there. Well, I mean, I think that that's the option. I mean, the option is if people's ability to live their lives differently than yours impinges on your sense of freedom, then you're going to have to extract yourself from society unless you want the society to become a model of your own religion, which we can't Or wage war and risk losing. I mean, but they're multiple religions. They're multiple religious practices. So who, which one takes priority? I don't understand. So to me, it's like, you know, it's not to say that we live in a secular world, although I might have said that earlier, but we live in a space where we all have to share it. And so if you want to create a safe space for yourself, maybe you can't, you can't create a space that could potentially be open to others, right? So you're going to have to hold really firm and fast to, uh, if you're having a religious school, then every single person that um, interacts in that school has to be of that religion. And then you can, you know, then you can do your practice as you will. Right. And if you want to, and if you want to question them and ask them what they do on the weekends and who they're friends with and what they believe. And, and if that's all part of the job, like a character, whatever, then that makes sense to me. You could do that, but then people are not interacting. No one's going to that space. You know what I mean? Then it's like, well, that's, that's it though. I mean, if you find that you can't hire anyone, then maybe you should think about your stupid ass beliefs. No, that's not I mean, I can't even have a conversation with you. So upset about it. That's the natural extension of those ideas. And that it's kind of like Disneyland, right? Where Disneyland says you are a performer, and they make all they make all sorts of distinctions about what. Yeah, they can tell you how tall you can be, how long your hair is gonna be. Yeah. And so you can create that same experience at a religious institution, but you you but then you don't get to have the protection of all the other institutions. You get to mm-hmm. call yourself a special category, right? You're recruiting from a very small pool, but at least everyone in that pool will be the same. Can we take just a moment? I'd like to take a moment to say that I am so pleasantly surprised that six justices sat down, read the law, looked at the cases in the context of the law and made a decision based on their reading of the law. I'm very happy about that. But you know, it's so strange that you say that because that is not how people have perceived the ones who disagree. They didn't perceive that it was a reading of the law. They thought that it was a it was a textual betrayal of the law. 
which I think is really strange because I thought that the idea is that you're always going to be interpreting, that the law is written in the past and you must then extrapolate. So this extrapolation is around sex discrimination, right? Which is what then gives them the room to do LGBT discrimination within it. And people are like, oh, no, that's not a strict, that's not a strict interpretation of the text well, of I, the law. I, I mean, look, I, I would say... I'll, I'll say this, you know, I read a couple quotes that were in that article from from Justice Alito. One comment Alito made, which, again, I don't necessarily agree with, but I think is is grounded in thought about law, is that, you know, Congress in 1960, 1964 did not, um, you know, they didn't reference trans or identities that are now that that it's now been applied to. And it's really Congress, if they want the law to, to be expanded to include those, it's really Congress should do that because they're the lawmaking body. I don't think that's an outlandish point of view. I still am more sympathetic to the other. But then he made the comment about like women who've been violated, experiencing trauma if they see a penis in in the bathroom. And that is like, that is like, that's not about the law. You're not talking about what the law said. And and again, creating a completely different commentary is ridiculous. You know what? But that's a window on the thinking, right? Again, yeah. like Christianity is a sex cult. That's a window on the thinking. Like an, a, a decontextualized penis will send women into an absolute tizzy. Like yeah. that that's really grounded yeah. in patriarchy and weird sex ideas that just don't exist. I mean, also, he also said like, this would be very traumatizing to women who have been traumatized in the past, offering no citations. Offering right. no research. Well, and nothing to do with stuff. the law. It has just nothing stuff. to do with the law. That's not his job. But it's also really strange to assume that this is happening in a bathroom. What if she saw that well, penis at work? Yeah. Like, yeah. What, if, like, what, if it's, what if the penis is at a job? I mean, like, it's just a really odd non sequitur to me. But, but I guess also, as you say, Chris, like a real indication of what the set of ideas are mm-hmm. and that, that, that can't really be unpacked. I when, mean, I read, when I read that Alito said that, I said, okay. So you have these ideas about men and you have these ideas about women as if a woman in a changing room saw a trans woman's penis and was like, I'm going to be attacked. I'm going to be attacked. That tells me a lot about what Alito thinks is happening to women on the day to day um, and the things that they should be afraid of, apparently being attacked in locker rooms and bathrooms, which is a conservative trope that if you look at the stats almost never happens. Well, you know what? Can I, can I tell you what happens to women? They actually just get attacked anywhere. Yeah. (laughs) Usually in their homes by people they know, not strangers who are laying in, who put on a wig to sneak into a female, a women's bathroom and lay in wait for hours. Like really come on. No, it's, it's not dissimilar (laughs) to what we talked about last week, which is the conservative trope of we need assault weapons everywhere. Just someone think of the single single mother. is at home with her kids and some treacherous men show up and she's got yeah. an assault rifle ready to mow them down because that happens every Tuesday. And I okay. wish Alito got called out on that because what he's yeah, talking I about, he, it's, I, think he, I think he was because I it's think deeper than LGBT no, stuff. It's just yeah, women that's stuff. Thing, like yeah. it's just his ideas about women, I think yeah. is. But I think to your point though, Jason, I think that that is also to be dismissed, his argument about Congress. Well, if it's already made it to the Supreme Court, it's already skipped that step. So that shouldn't be the reason why (laughs) you are choosing not to apply the law, right? So it's like, that, that, that's almost like a, yes, I get it, but that's not a reason for you not to actually side on the 6-3 side. It should have been, should have been 7-2. 
It does, <laughs> it, it does, though. It just does touch on the reality, which is that we have a Congress that is not legislating. Yeah. Yep. Well, I'm, I'm hoping that that changes, honestly. I think Me it will. Too. I think there's going to be the next two elections are going to sweep a lot of those jerks out. That's a different topic for another day. Okay. Let's leave topics all together. And let's move on to recommendations, which is something that you've seen, heard, read, or experienced. You think other people should see, hear, read, and experience. Trisha, why don't you go first? I actually pleasantly <laughs> oh, consumed God. media this week. No. <laughs> God. I don't know if you've all been paying attention the last three weeks. Two of the last three weeks, Trisha has recommended Trashy Romance. One about a biker gang who fights sex crimes and the other one about a giant green penis, which I'm sure would traumatize any nearby women. Traumatize Justice Alito. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm sorry. I have a fabulous recommendation and you will be able to find it on your Netflix, folks, because Netflix has put together a helpful collection that as soon as you log in, there is a Black Lives Matter collection. I'm going to recommend the absolutely wonderful six-parter, Who Killed Malcolm X? That was fantastic. It sounds interesting. It follows activist Abdur Raham Muhammad. He begins his own investigation into the perplexing details surrounding the assassination of Malcolm X. So it is absolutely captivating and it is stirring. It really cuts at some of the core issues, I think, that Black people still grapple with in terms of the sacrifices we're we're willing to make for the individual versus the greater good. Because when you get to who killed Malcolm X, which the show does actually answer that question, and you see how people respond to the re- to the answer. We were very sad by the decisions that Black people made, and so it was really, really. It's really compelling to watch. Really, really lovely, Six lovely parts, documentary. huh? But you know what? We, I mean, my how how long is each here. part? Like forty minutes. It's very oh, okay. Watchable. Okay. It's, yeah, yeah. It's very watchable. Um, but but let's be honest, it's also watchable because Malcolm X was gorgeous and so yeah. compelling. But I mean, the the, the unmasking that this ha- this does around kind of masculinity, black community, mm, it asks some really troubling questions. And so I'd love for you all to watch it and for us to even kind of deconstruct it in mm. a kind of Black Lives Matter moment. Like I'm really curious about what we what the compromises people made. Um, <laughs> oh, maybe we um, should discuss it on an episode. Maybe I we think will. We should. Put it uh, on the list. This Jason. Is ver- this is very off any of the topics we've discussed. My son decided to start reading a book, The Last Musketeer, by Stuart Gibbs, who wrote the Spy School series. So this is like books for kids. But I read it. I have to say, I've never read The Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas. I have not seen any Three Musketeers movies. Like, I don't know. I just like missed Have you all. eaten any Three Musketeers before? I have done that many times. Delicious. That's, that's it. Delicious. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. But the, the book, um, is it's, it's very good. It's the first in a trilogy. I just started the second book. And I would guess that someone who's read The Three Musketeers would like it even more because it's got tons of references to The, the, the Three Musketeers. Last Musketeer. Ooh. Isn't the Last Musketeer D'Artagnan, like, that's what the Three Musketeers was about. There were actually four of them. Yes, and this no, <laughs> so, no, no, no. The, the book gives an origin story to D'Artagnan. 
Interesting. Yeah. Uh-huh. Very interesting. On Instagram, I was sent. I need uh, you to stop that. Can you stop? <laughs> there was. I was sent a, a video, which was like a. It was a five or six minute video. It was like a celebration of Pride, and it had uh, a couple of people singing like a mashup of songs by Madonna and Lady Gaga. And then all throughout the screen were all these different people just like dancing, like with in drag or with rainbow flags and just living their very best lives. I don't, I found it really moving and I teared up just because that's the only pride I'm going to get this year because everything's canceled. You know, the one thing I love about being gay is just that you have got to live your life out loud. Like I, have a gift that I can just be who I want to be and put it out there and celebrate it. And it's wonderful. And anyone can really do that. And it's such a gift to be able to be exactly who you want to be and love yourself and love other people and love that other people are being exactly who they want to be. It just feels really powerful and wonderful. It's a fabulous time of year, Pride. It really is. Because it's it's for everyone. I love it. So I, I will sh- we'll share that video. Yeah, we've we've talked at length about how much you appreciate the commercialization of Pride, and so I want to tell you, <laughs> if you're missing Pride, I went to Target this evening, and oh, everything dear. is wrapped in rainbows. Everything oh, good! Is Pride. So, <laughs> so glad. Just go to Target, Chris. So yeah. glad Target like is just, on. Just, just like board. at a march. So glad. I'll tell you <laughs> these. These brands are like, whoo, thank God there's no pride. We don't have to go out on a limb this year. But I don't miss it. It's not about the brands. It's about people of all ages and all stripes just looking themselves in the mirror and be like, I love what that is. I love who that is. It's awesome. And then you dance. Because why wouldn't you? Is, <laughs> why wouldn't you? Oh. That's great. That is very <laughs> I have to say. That is. So another successful week. Uh, anyone have any plans? Anything different from what you've been doing as we close out the show? <laughs> I'm, I'm getting married on Monday. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? I told you I was engaged. You told us you were engaged like three weeks ago, and now That's you're when getting I got engaged. You know what? The pandemic's on, and we're just like, fuck it. You know what? I'm 45. She's 39. Are you serious? It's second time. Oh no, I'm serious. I'm getting married on Monday. Secret marriages. He has secrets. I told you before. It's not like I told you. I didn't wait till next week to be like I got married yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I mean that makes sense though because you can't invite anybody, right? Exactly. It's the cheapest time to have a wedding. I'm like, let's do it before this thing ends. Unbelievable. You know what? And on that cheap ass note, everybody, (laughs) congratulations, Jason, and goodbye. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) Oh, <laughs> boy.